This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, Session 110. And the quote of the day is from Bruce Lee, who said, A goal is not always meant to be reached. It often serves simply as something to aim at. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals. Information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. And first, I want to thank everyone who has voted for me so far for the 2015 Drummies. And if you have not voted, please do me a favor and go over to drummagazine.com forward slash Drummies. Drummer's Resource has been nominated for Best General Interest Website or Best General Interest Drumming Website. And I would really, really love to win that. And uh, you can vote until July 3rd. So if you can just, it'll literally take you 30 seconds. Just go over drummagazine.com forward slash drummies, D-R-U-M-M-I-E-S, and vote for Drummer's Resource and your favorite favorite gear and things that you're digging in 2015. This session is sponsored by Drum Magazine. And if you want to play better, be sure you're checking them out every single month. They don't just have these cliche Q&As. They have in-depth profiles, gear reviews, and some of the best lessons you'll find on the net, including 43 shuffles every drummer should know. And I bet you didn't even know that there were 43 shuffles because I did not. Uh, So check them out and subscribe today at drummagazine.com. This session is also sponsored by DW Drums, and the reason why I've been playing DW Drums for so long is because not only do they make great products here in the United States, but they also support drumming initiatives all over the world, much like this podcast and a bunch of other things, and that's why I really, really love the brand and and love to uh, to play their drums and support what they're doing over there, and, and Don Lombardi's a, a great guy and a friend of mine, so... Check them out at dwdrums.com and be sure to thank them for supporting this podcast and for keeping the lights on here so I can continue to interview great drummers. Speaking of great drummers, the interview today is with the amazing John Riley, who is best known for all of his work on the jazz scene. Uh, he wrote the formidable book, formidable book, excuse me, um, The Art of Bop Drumming, which is a tremendous book if you're looking to to study some jazz. And we're going to get into his career and his approach to playing and, and musicality and musicianship and groove and, and creativity and all of that stuff. So I'm going to stop talking and I'm going to start talking to John right now. So here it is, the interview with John Riley. Hey, John, thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Nick. Thank you. Absolutely. It's great to it's great to have you on the show and we're going to really dive into your storied career and I I always like to get a little bit of backstory on the drummers that I have on the show and there's a lot of information about you online. So, but just just give the listeners a quick a quick overview of uh, of sort of of where you come from, who you are and what you do. Well, I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, I saw the Beatles on television. That inspired me to uh, to think about music. Actually, not really think about music. Think about having fun and excitement, because that's what they would look look like they were into. And I was a kid, and uh, of course, that's what I wanted to do: have more fun. Music was part of it, and as I listened more, I got more more and more captivated by it. And so it started with the Beatles. Then I had a. a I had a drum teacher named Tom Sokola, and uh, I had just a snare drum, and I'm, I write with my left hand. Uh, 
and I'd been playing this snare drum. And I went for my first lesson with Tom Sokola, and he said, yeah, that, that, that grip is okay, but if you're ever going to get a drum set, you should play right-handed. <laughs> so in my first lesson, he switched me from this kind of funny left-handed traditional grip that my father showed me into a more proper uh, right-handed traditional grip with the left hand playing traditional. Right. Sorry, that's a little confusing. <laughs> no, I get uh, what you were saying. You were, you were just, your grip was completely reversed at, in the beginning, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. But I only had a snare drum and I hadn't taken any lessons and I would uh, kind of mess around on this snare drum while listening to the radio. Right. And, uh, and I guess I did it a lot. And my father thought, well, if he's going to do it that much, we better get him some lessons. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of how it started. And how old were you? Were you, how old were you when you started? Excuse me. I guess eight or nine. Okay. It's really weird because there's a lot, a lot of times when I interview people, that's around when they started, usually around nine years old. So, which is, it's just interesting. I always like to know how old people were when they started. So you fall right into that, into that category of, you know, everybody seems to have started when they were nine, which is. I guess that's because school band programs were, you know, handing out instruments to kids in fourth and fifth grade. And so you would pick what instrument you wanted to play. Right. Uh, I think in my case, it was just a coincidence that the Ed Sullivan show had the Beatles on at about the same time Mm -hmm. my school was passing out instruments. So now when you were, when you had mentioned that when you first started really getting into drumming, it was the Beatles that got you that really spark this excitement in music and, and to have fun. So when did the transition come into jazz playing? Um, I had a, a teacher, a woman teacher, must have been uh, in sixth grade, who had a son that was a drummer, and he was killed in the very early days of the Vietnam War when nobody knew what was going on oh, or that yeah. there was even a war. And she had a bunch of his gear that she gave to me and uh, a fellow drummer in the class. And uh, two records I got from her. And one was a a Max Roach record called Conversation, which I didn't really understand at all. (laughs) And the other one was the soundtrack to the Gene Krupa story. Hmm. And, And that one I was kind of captivated by. And I would play along with the record in my basement every day, uh, in addition to listening to, uh, you know, the Beatles and then Hendrix and Zeppelin and all of that stuff. I was playing with this, with this Krupa record, and there were a couple tunes on there that I absolutely couldn't hang with. The tempo was way too fast. But I, I just kept playing with it, and, uh, and I was drawn to, to the feeling of the music and... Uh, the fact that he played some drum solos and um, it just seemed to be, I began to get the feeling that the jazz music uh, offered the opportunity for the drummer to make a little more contribution mm-hmm. to, to the overall uh, music. Mm-hmm. And so that, uh, that's what, what started the transition. Hmm. It took quite a while for for jazz to be the primary thing I was practicing. Right. 
I, you know, the one thing that I have noticed is that people who are into rock or more, I, I guess I would say more, um, more, you know, like two and four kind of stuff have this weird thing with jazz where they're scared of it. They don't understand it. And, and, you know, they sort of, uh, put it off in the corner and, and don't really mess around with it. So for those people out there that are listening, what's your advice for people if they want to get into jazz? Cause I strongly suggest that everyone learns styles, you know, all the styles, but especially jazz in the history and at least learn some of the standards and to, you know, to really see where rock and roll and, and all of this stuff comes from. Um, so how would you suggest that people sort of put their toe in the water, so to speak, to get started down that road? Well, I, you know, that's really common and, and that's a good observation on your part. I think that, uh, you know, unless you are Louis Armstrong or Duke Ellington, almost no one experiences music in chronological order. Mm-hmm. We all start at some point and, uh, and either decide to look back to see how we how music arrived at where we're starting, or we just take it forward from there. Right. And and in my case, it's definitely been a journey to figure out why people play what they play now and how it was influenced by what happened before. Um, you know, when you when you listen to the early rock and roll records, there there were no rock drummers. Right. All the drummers on those records were jazz drummers, mm-hmm. and and uh, since we're primarily an accompanying instrument, what those dr- drummers did was uh, modify the jazz beat and turn it into a shuffle, and then eventually even out the shuffle. So if you can kind of see that that uh, that relationship and that link, then it might be a little easier to listen to some jazz stuff. Right. I would, I would suggest, um, maybe some of the hard, hard bop stuff like Art Blakey or, um, maybe the Ama Jamal trio, which was what isn't really hard bop, but, uh, with Vernel Fournier as really starting points where the music is kind of accessible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and more more groove oriented mm-hmm. um, as as a good place to to kind of find a connection right yeah cuz i think i agree with you that if you're just going to jump into something that's completely over your head and some some out there avant-garde jazz it's not going to help you uh it's not going to help that help you with that transition very much no you need to find some kind of bridge something right. that links things together mhm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and especially you know the the Art Blakey stuff. Uh, all, you know, he's like the king of the shuffles. You know, all that stuff that he had going, all those those hard shuffles that he had were just amazing. And I definitely agree with you. That's a good place to start. And the songs were um, not so complicated. A lot of them, and kind of trying to cross over in a way. So if they were trying to cross over to a wider audience. Uh, it might be possible for this wide audience to look back and find the crossover that Art Blakey was hoping for. Sure. So you're saying that he was making it more accessible with with sort of adding a backbeat to it? Well, with with playing shuffles, with playing riff-oriented tunes, with um, 
keeping the solos pretty short, mm-hmm. um, with having a very organized band. When you see videos of his band, especially the band with Freddie Hubbard and Wayne Shorter, mm-hmm. their stage presence is really polished. Uh, when Art Blakey introduces a song, it's as if he has a script that he's reading, and uh, he's really polished. And and when he when he walks from the drums to the microphone, um, it's very very uh, professional, but inviting looking. And then when he returns to the drums, he doesn't turn his back to the audience. He walks backwards so that he's right. facing the audience the whole time. Right. So he's thinking about. Uh, keeping the audience engaged mm-hmm. and not about necessarily about creating some kind of abstract new art. Right. Right. Hmm. I never thought of it like that. And I've, you know, I've watched videos of it and, and noticed that, but never really put all of that together. Yeah. There's a great video. I think you can still find on YouTube. It's called art Blakey and San Remo, maybe 1963. It's a concert in Italy. And the band is really on fire, but there's still uh, a kind of uh, there's a there's an entry point into the music uh, for for novice jazz listeners. Hmm. So that uh, that would be worth checking out. Cool. Yeah, I'll definitely make sure I link to that uh, in the show notes too, so so everyone can check it out. Art Blakey, Sam you. Remo. Yeah, that's two words, S-A-N-R-E-M-O. Yep. Awesome. Yeah, just, I'm, I'm making some notes as we're speaking because I, I, I want to check it out too. So uh, so that's one video that I haven't seen. So Now, I, we talked about, you know, the, the bridge of, of getting from one thing to the next. And the, to me, I think the lineage of, of the music is important to know, you know, where we were, where we come from and, and where we're going. And I'm going to maybe put you on the spot here a little bit. Um, can, but can you break down sort of the lineage of from, from early jazz and how it transformed all the way up into say rock and roll. And because I think that a lot of people have a hard time making the connection of how did ragtime become the Beatles? And it's sort of, a, I understand it's a loaded question, but if you could just give a, a brief history on that, that would be great for the listeners. Well, I'm not sure that I'm the authority on that subject. I'm a, I'm a student of it and a fan. But, you know, the drum set is a, a relatively young instrument, and, and when it was put together there was no drum set language. Mm-hmm. So what what drummers used was basically the military language of rudiments mm-hmm. and cadences. And then they, we find ourselves in a situation where we have to accompany ragtime piano players. Right. And then Dixieland bands. And, uh, and so... What happened was drummers took this this march language and modified it so that it was more sympathetic to what ragtime piano players were doing. Mm-hmm. And then they modified it again to to work in an ensemble with a 
with a tuba as the bass instrument and a banjo as a rhythm instrument and a trumpet clarinet and trombone as the front line. And that became Dixieland. And so this, this basic march rhythm that was played on the snare drum, this mm-hmm. eventually moved over and was emulated on the hi-hat. Ding, 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 and then moved over onto the ride cymbal. And, um, I mean, this is really a snapshot. Right, the uh, abridged version. Uh, uh, the very abridged version. But I heard, a, and then I heard an interview with, with uh, Kenny Clark, and he was being asked, how did he come up with this kind of bebop language of, playing syncopated stuff on the snare drum and bass drum while playing time on the cymbal. And he said that, that he loved the way Joe Jones played on the hi-hat, but he could never get exactly that. And he said that when he watched Joe Jones play, uh, the way his right hand crossed over his left hand to play the hi-hat, he said it, it looked like his left hand was trapped and couldn't do very much. And then he made an analogy. He said, you know, I would never hire a one-armed piano player. Right. And he said, so I decided to move my right hand from the hi-hat onto the cymbal, and that freed up my left hand. Wow. And so, so that's part of the evolution. He couldn't do what one of his idols did, so he modified things a little bit. Hmm. So that's interesting. Yeah. So then Max Roach and Art Blakey took this this innovation that Kenny Clark had and kind of turboized it. Now we have the beginning of uh, of what they call the jump bands, mm-hmm. which were R and B swing, hard swing R and B sort of early R and B pop bands, but they were playing swing. And out of that came Elvis and the beginning of rock and roll and Fats Domino and and all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so this, you know, the drums are a really powerful instrument. Yep. But but if we overpower the band, we're not going to get hired. So we have to learn how to accompany. And that's wh- what's been happening all along, that we've been taking these, these tools that we have and modifying them to support the innovation of the other instruments. It's rare that an innovation that a drummer makes forces the music forward. It's more often that something else is happening that requires us to adapt to it. Mm-hmm. And that's that's how March became swing, became shuffle, became rock and roll. And then rock and roll became funk when bass players got a little more syncopated and sophisticated. Right. And what did drummers do there? Well, they started to play paradiddles between their hands mm-hmm. and, and line up the bass drum with those paradiddles to play more syncopated with the bass players. And it's a it's a continual evolution. 
Right. It's it's not quite like uh, what is it Moore's law in computers that that every two years the capacity of a computer doubles. Right. It's not quite like that, but <laughs> but drumming is evolving, and uh, and the requirements of being a competent player in this era, I think, are higher than they've ever been. Hmm. Now because you... of, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, because of that, we need to be aware of all that history, and um, there have been highly accomplished players in each era. Right. Kind of pushing, pushing uh, the requirements forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I never thought about that, that. That you know, as generations go by, there's another style, and then another style, and another style, and it's like now you have to learn all of this stuff. You know, before you may have just had to learn how to play jazz. Now you have to learn how to play jazz and funk and rock and fusion and you know and all this other stuff. Well, you don't have to. Right. Uh, you can focus on on the music that tickles your ear the most. Mm-hmm. Um, and generally the people that do that are the innovators in those, in that style. Right. Um, but there's a lot of hybridization going on and there's innovation through that mm-hmm. as well. So what is your opinion of the, the current state of, of drumming and, and where it's going? Drummers are more uh, accomplished. I, I think there are more highly accomplished drummers today than ever. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that there are there's more music being played on the drums. Right. But um, the the capacity and the artillery that uh, I would say that more people have. A super high capacity um, these days than ever before, and that's probably because of of things like podcasts and YouTube and uh, and all of that. Because the whole history of the music is available to anyone at any time at their fingertips. Right. When I was a kid. Uh, my drum lessons with Tom Sokola were three dollars a half an hour. Wow! And um, I think drum teachers in general were were thrifty, mm-hmm. and they would, you know, why are we still using the stink control book and the syncopation book uh, when there've been so many more advanced books? Uh, uh, that have come out in the past 50 years. I think so many people use those books because the early drum teeth, because there was very little text in them and that didn't close the minds of drum teachers or drummers to what their potential was. Right. And so drum teachers being cheap would, instead of encouraging me to get another book, we would find a way to adapt the, the, exercises and syncopation or stick control to mm-hmm. solve a wide range of problems. Right, right. And I, I, I still do that to this day, though. I mean, I use, you know, I use page five and six of stick control for everything, you know. I wrote a book around it. 
Well, I use the first half, the first column of page five. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and one page of syncopation. Right, right. <laughs> and if you're creative in a way, it makes things easier because you have you have a template and then you have treatments of it. Mm-hmm. Rather than needing to remember a hundred different things, you have one sort of shape and then you have these different ways that you look at it. Right. I've always explained, because I wrote a book around, you know, using stick control, but applying all these different things. So, you know, the way I explain it is it is a systematic way to work through, you know, whatever thing you're working on. So it's all, the system is already laid out in front of you and then you just sort of apply your own, you know, your own creativity to it and and use the R's and the L's to stand for whatever you want them to stand for. Yeah, that's what Joe Morello did when I was, when I was studying with him. And that's the basis for his books, Master Studies and Master Studies too. Mm -hmm. Um, And I even, when he was writing Master Studies too, he asked me to to come over and we played through all the stuff and um, a couple of the exercises I didn't quite understand where they were coming from and when he told me what treatment he was putting on those R's and L's and the stick control it became very obvious what what was going on mm-hmm. um, so let's so, talk about that so the listeners aren't aren't Lost. So let's talk about like give an idea of, of of a treatment that we could put on. Say even even let's say the first exercise, right, left, just back and forth. R L R L R L R L. Uh, well, there's two that I really like. One is every time you see an R, you play right, left, left. Mm-hmm. And every time you see an L. You play right, right, left. Mm -hmm. And so if you're playing the first line, it ends up being right, left, left, right, right, left, 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 right. So it turns out to be six stroke rolls. Right. Now, if you go down to the paradiddle, it's Right, left, left, right, right, left, right, left, left, right, left, left, right, right, left, right, left, left, right, right, left, right, right, left. And these combinations actually create really nice accent patterns that you can play as triplets or even take the same phrases and play them in the 16th note rate. Then it gets pretty hairy, like mentally. But um, but that's that's one treatment. Mm-hmm. And what was but, the other one you said that you liked? Uh, every time you see a right, play a right paradiddle. Every time you see a left, play a left paradiddle. So the double stroke roll, right, right, left, left, is... Right, left, right, 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 left, right, right, left, right, left, 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 right, left, left, right, left, right, 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 left, right, right, left, right, left, 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 right, left, left. Right. And having these these three notes on each hand with the last one being accented really helped strengthen my hands. Yeah, that's. And when I was studying with Morella, we would play the. Well, we worked it up over over the course of some months 
which I know I can't do this anymore, but to play the 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 th- first three pages of Stick Control at uh, quarter note equals two hundred. Yeah, it was super fast and Jeez. long. It is fast. So it was a real endurance. So it was like maybe faster than that, um, like through the whole thing. Wow. And so that was a real um, endurance and concentration hmm. uh, exercise. It's it's such an amazing thing to to start to put these you know to put these treatments on it as you know we'll call them uh, for the for stick control. The one that you mentioned, the parroted one, sort of reminds me of one that I do is. Um, play if you see an R play um, the beginning half of paradiddle so just right left right right but accent the the first note and then if you see an L play left left right left and accent the right in that so if you have you know an R and an L it's yeah 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 and then flip them and then use natural sticking so that you'll have like this is where it gets hairy. You have a right-handed R and a left-handed R and then a right-handed L and a left-handed L. <laughs> you know, if, if you're using actual sticking. Mm-hmm. Once you learn it, it's okay. But at the beginning, it kind of, you know, throws your brain for a loop. Well, that, that can be good. Yeah, yeah. You know, I always say if, uh, if your practicing sounds good, you're not practicing. Right. <laughs> I love so that. So if it's easy to do... Um, you're probably not growing that much through the process. Right. I agree. So what is your, what's your advice and, and approach to practicing? It's always a hot topic here on the podcast because the listeners are always want to know how, how can, how can I practice better? What's, what's the best way to practice? And, you know, I don't think there's a, a surefire answer, but I always like to hear everyone's approach and opinions on practicing. Well, I think we practice skills and we try and apply that to music. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I guess playing in time is the most important thing. And so then you have to ask yourself, why don't we play in time? Right. And I think there's two two main reasons. One is that we have a coordination issue or we have a concentration issue. If, you, if you're playing something that you have control over and you're concentrating, it should be in time. Mm-hmm. So I'm always looking for things that challenge my coordination and my concentration to, to get more command of the instrument. And then, um, I like to play with recordings yeah, and see if I can access these new skills that, uh, that I'm cultivating, um, not really in the heat of battle, but closer to in the heat of battle, uh, than if I'm only concentrating on playing a particular exercise as soon as i have to account for a bass player and form um part of my brain power is committed to that so it makes it harder to to play new ideas clearly Mm -hmm. Uh, i i talk about i think there's there's a, a lot of people sound great in the practice room 
Yeah. And but then they can't access any of that stuff when they play with people. Right. I was going to say so, I sound fantastic in the in the practice room. Some days I do too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I think there's a gulf between the stage and the practice room. Right. And you need to create a halfway house. Mm-hmm. And for me, the halfway house is playing with records, playing with recordings. So let's say I'm working on a particular new phrase. First, I just work on the phrase and don't even think about 4-4 four, four or four-measure phrases or anything like that. I just try and get a flow on this, this idea that, this new idea that occurred to me. Mm-hmm. Then I try and put it into a context of, of a pulse. Mm-hmm. And then I try and put it into a context of four measures. When I can do that comfortably, then I'll put on a recording and force myself to play that new phrase every chance I can with the recording. Right. Just, just to see if I can do it while I have to acknowledge um, this other information that's coming in my ears. Mm-hmm. When I can do that, the next step is to put on another recording and see if something in that recording will trigger me to play the new phrase. Oh, that's and so then, so then once that happens, I'm much closer to being able to access it when I'm playing with people. Right. Now, usually, I'm, I'm not... Some people can practice things and immediately play it the next day on a gig. Uh, because their consciousness of what they're playing is uh, is so strong. Right. I'm I'm not really trying to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, what I can't I'm do trying that, to so. <laughs> I'm trying to learn new material and I practice it more or less until I can't stand hearing myself play it anymore. Right. And then I know I have it, and then I just kind of put it to sleep and um, a month or two or three months later I'll be playing and something will happen and this thing will arrive at the right moment for the music right and I'll I'll have to ask oh where did that that related to that thing I was practicing in mm-hmm. the past mm-hmm. um, I used to keep a little cassette player next to my drum set, a cassette recorder next to my drum set. And, and when I stumbled upon something I'd like, I liked, I'd record 30 seconds of it. But I wouldn't listen to the tape until I had 90 minutes of those little snippets. Wow. And it might take, you know, a couple of months to fill that tape up. Sure. And then I'd listen, listen to the tape, and there'd be things that I had absolutely no rele- recollection of. Or didn't really know where one was, right? But but that <laughs> would that create a day. new <laughs> exploration of these ideas that that captivated me, you know, two months earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I got a little more efficient and started to write down the ideas. And when I couldn't think of anything to practice, I'd open up one of these books where I had ideas written down and. 
and I'd just start playing those ideas, and I'd find links between them that I hadn't considered before. And I have pages and pages of this stuff with the date marked when I wrote them down and, and arrows connecting phrases from different dates together. And, and uh, that made my practicing a little more um, focused. Sure. Yeah, I think that a lot of people walk into the practice room and they walk in, they sit down, they say, okay, I'm here. Now what do I do? Well, what I do is I usually start out by playing 10 or 15 minutes of real easy stuff on a practice pad. And while I'm doing that, um, I'm not focusing on speed or anything like that. I'm just trying to, to get my blood circulating and to try and get my muscles to sort of align for, for drumming. And at the same time, I'm thinking about what I hope to accomplish when I sit at the drums. Because when I sit at the drums, I don't want to feel like I have to warm up. I want to start trying to play music right away. Right. And so that might, you know, that might be an approach for sure. those that walk into the room and don't quite know what to do. Right. Yeah, and, uh, you know, a lot of people say they don't know what to practice. And I say anything that, <laughs> anything that you can't play, try that. <laughs> yeah, or, t or t you know pick up any drum book and open it to any page and start playing it and then see how you can modify it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like that approach. Now you would mention, yeah. you had mentioned, um, in, I saw something on YouTube that you were talking about the four things that drummers must have are technique, groove, creativity, and musicianship. Mm -hmm. to, to really be a well-rounded drummer. And I'd love to touch on those uh, quickly just to talk about maybe ways to, to develop those four skills. Technique, I think, you know, the easiest one. Groove a little bit easier or, you know, a little bit harder. But creativity and musicianship, I think, is one that, that people have a hard time with. So if we could just touch on those, that would be, I think the, the listeners would get some great value out of that. Sure. Where do you want to start? Uh, let's start with the, the easy one. Let's start with technique. Well, I'm, I'm just trying to, to let the sticks do as much of the work as possible. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to, trying to capitalize on rebound. And I find when I, when I am doing that, I get a more beautiful sound. I get a more legato sound. Mm-hmm. And I've been working on this for <laughs> quite a while, so I don't really have to think about it anymore. Right. What I do, my awareness is, is of the one second when I start to tighten up and my sound changes. And then I immediately, like touching a hot stove, I immediately move out of that, out of that zone. Right. Just quickly back off and relax a little bit. Yes, relax uh, as much as possible. Mm -hmm. I think Ed Sof has a great phrase. He doesn't think he didn't. What did he say? He said, "I think about degrees of looseness, not degrees of tightness." Right. <laughs> That's interesting. You, know, you want to have maximum looseness and still control. Yep. If you're too loose, then you lose control. Mm -hmm. 
So that's what I'm thinking about in terms of the hands. In terms of the feet, I'm just thinking about integrating them and being able to to drop bass drum notes or hi-hat notes anywhere inside a string of, of hand notes. Hmm. Um, now, how do you typically practice that kind of stuff? Um, well, I might play quarter notes on the hi-hat and think of a 16th note rate and you can do it systematically like playing um, two notes with a hand, two notes with the feet Mm -hmm. two notes with a hand one note with, I'm sorry, two notes with a hand two notes with the bass drum two notes with a hand, one note with the bass drum one and one um, all against all against the quarter note in the hi hat. Right. So it's going to be like if the tempo is one, two, three, four. Ba da do do da da do do da da do do da da do do ba da 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 and 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 then randomize those. Ba da do do da da do do ba da and da and da and da and da and da and ba da and ba da do do ba da um. And then gradually increase the speed on that. Wow, that's cool. I've never done, it, I've never done that before, but I'm doing that today. <laughs> and then when when that gets comfortable, maybe start to think about groups of five. So can be four notes with a hand. Ba da 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 boom ba da 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 boom da 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 boom boom bam. All against the quarter note. All against the quarter note, yeah. Or Tony Williams a lot of times would play three with the hand and two with the foot. So one, two, three, four, da 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 boom, da 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 boom, boom, da 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 boom, boom, ba ah, two, three, four, ba 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 boom, boom, ba 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 boom, boom, ba 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 boom, boom, ba ah, and then you can make the phrase longer, ba da da boom, boom, da 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 boom, boom, da 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 boom, boom, ba 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 ba on. Interesting. Or sevens, and then you want to get to the point where it can be totally random. Right. And just have total control. Well, I would say access. <laughs> right. Right. And then you can do it between the hands and the left foot. Then you can drop the quarter notes off the left foot and play it between hands and random bass drum and hi-hat notes. Or not random, but uh, mixed up. Right. This is all interesting stuff. I'm intrigued. I'm definitely trying. Well, that's really helped me. Then you can do it at the triplet rate. Right. Yeah, I'm just think. I'm sort of quiet right now because I'm hearing it in my head a little bit. So. Yeah, I. This is this is great. I I I think these are all. Uh, amazing ideas and the possibilities are endless, you know, wherever you want to take this. Well, that's good and bad. (laughs) (laughs) Could drive you crazy. (laughs) Well, or it can paralyze you because you know, the possibilities are endless. So where do you start? Right. But just start. That's the key is starting. Just start, you know, get in there. Yeah. I think we've all found ourselves in a, in a situation where we've had a lot of free time and we've avoided the instrument. Yeah. Um, 
And that's happened to me too, where I'll have a couple of days, free days, and I'll have all these big plans to practice. And the first day I won't practice, and the second day I won't practice. And the last day, finally, at 9 o'clock at night, I'll sit at the drums and I'll play about 15 minutes, and my wife will say, hey, what are you doing? And uh, <laughs> and I will enjoy it so much, I'll be so pissed that I wasted those other days. Yeah. Yep. I I used to think that I needed two or three hours to make progress. I needed a block of two or three hours to make progress. And and I've discovered that that's not true at all. If I have 10 minutes, if I sit at the instrument, something good will happen, and I'll feel better the next time I sit at the instrument. That's 10 more minutes than than if you didn't practice. Yeah, and I, I remain kind of hungry to practice when the sessions are in smaller chunks. Right. I mean, sometimes I'll do long, two or three hours, but not like I did years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I used to practice six hours a day in college. And to me now, it just seems like, I, I feel like I, I, I practice more efficiently now, so I think that maybe all six of those hours were not uh, productive hours of practicing. I was in the practice room for six hours, but but I feel like I could get the, the same amount done in a quarter of the time. Well, and you know more what you're going for now. Sure. What the requirements are. Right. I After my freshman year in college, I got a a gig playing at an amusement park called Astro World, which was in Houston, Texas. And they had a uh, kind of a Broadway review show band that did this 45-minute shows like every hour, 18,000 times a day. <laughs> and um, I was hired uh, for the gig, and I got fired after the first day. Really? Yeah, because I was, I wasn't prepared. I didn't, I was, I wasn't uh, so comfortable following a conductor, mm-hmm. and I hadn't had much experience playing shows, and that really disappointed and angered me that I wasn't, uh, that I didn't have the skills required to keep that gig. Right. And that summer, I practiced 10, 12 hours a day um, with a kind of uh, incredible hunger and focus. And when I returned to school in September, I sounded like a different person than when I left in, in May. And people asked me, man, what have you been doing? And I mean, I was practicing. I was focused. Right. And and that made me realize that you can make a lot of progress in a short amount of time if if you're focused. Mm-hmm. And every summer after after school was finished, my objective was to sound like a different guy when I returned in September. And uh, it wasn't that hard to do. I mean, it was definitely possible. Hmm. So having the desire and the curiosity and the focus, um, I think it's much more important than whatever talent might be. Right. 
right? I think there's a, a Will Smith said that uh, talent comes naturally, but skill comes from hours and hours and hours of beating on your craft. And that's always stuck with me that, you know, if you want to get better, practice. Mm-hmm. Not everybody's mm-hmm. born with, you know, these amazing chops and, and musicality. It's, it's, a, it's a skill that you can learn if you're, if you're willing to focus and put the time in to do it. Yeah, and I've actually, I've had some students that were, um, let's call them child prodigies. And, uh, you know, they were exceptional as kids, and because they were exceptional, they got a, a lot of praise for being exceptional. And then they're in high school, and they can't think about what, they they don't know what they want to do when they go to college, but they've always been praised for playing music so they get a music degree and then one day at age 22 or 24 or 35 they wake up and and have a question like wow do I want the fact that I was better than all the other eight-year-olds at playing the snare drum to to dictate the course of my life right and so sometimes you know, being gifted, um, but not really being disciplined can, can take you down a path that you don't really want to go. Sure. And they, you know, there's been studies with, you know, people that are, that have been praised at a young age, don't learn what it's like to lose or don't, you know, don't understand what disappointment is and don't, understand that they have to work for things and then they get older and they think everything should be handed to them and it's not and it becomes almost detrimental to their character which is which is pretty amazing yeah it's unfortunate sure it's absolutely unfortunate yeah and i think a lot of it is no fault to their own it's just if you're if you if you grew up in that in that environment and and have always got that that positive reinforcement well you're going to continue to live your life that way until like you said you wake up one day and maybe you've made some decisions that you shouldn't have or made some decisions that maybe you wouldn't necessarily have if, if you weren't, uh, you know, if you didn't grow up with those circumstances. Yeah. If it's the only thing you ever get praised for, it's hard not to, to follow it. Sure. <laughs> yep. Yep. I agree. Yeah. So I wanted to touch on, uh, the three other, the three other, uh, let's say, let's call them categories. So the other one was the next one is groove. So how do you how do you suggest that people develop their groove? Well, I mentioned a little bit like working on concentration and coordination and concentration, mm-hmm. uh, playing along with records that make you feel good. Um, as a jazz drummer, I I emulated the cymbal beat of of the players that uh, that I thought sounded the best to me, at different tempos. Mm -hmm. And so for slower tempos, I kind of have a a template, a sound in my mind based on the the recordings I heard of other people or seeing other people play. And so um, I tried to, to capture that feeling in my playing. In the spacing and the balance of the way I play the cymbal, and then obviously the balance of the way the rest of the kit flows underneath that. Right. Um, 
I didn't practice much with a metronome when I was young because there weren't metronomes loud enough for me to hear <laughs> when I was playing the drums. Right. I did have one of these uh, wind-up, I think Tactel was the company that made it. It was like a flesh-colored uh, pendulum metronome. Yep, I know exactly and, the one you're talking about. And uh, my father had a reel-to-reel tape recorder, and at one point I did record that metronome at various tempos so that I could listen to it through headphones and play along with it. But mainly, I played with recordings that felt good to me, right. and I would use the metronome when I practiced snare drum technique on a pad. I got you. Um, you know, nowadays there's all kinds of tools available to work on um, timing precision mm-hmm. uh, and play along tracks. And the only play along tracks I had was this record that Jim Chapin made called. Uh, was a music minus one record called for drummers only. Hmm. And I, I played along with that record a lot too. Cool. In addition to that Gene Krupa record when right. I was a kid. Right. I've actually, I just started using a, uh, a drop metronome, which is really handy. So it just, What's that? so it's a metronome where you can set it to a certain BPM and then you can have it drop out. Say if you're playing, you know, quarter note equals 90, you can have it drop out a certain percentage of the clicks. And mm-hmm. so you can either, you can have it from 10% to 90%, and then you can also have it gradually increase. So it can start at dropping out 10% of the of the clicks, and by the time you end, it's dropping out 90% of the click. And it does that in a in a programmed way, or is it random? It's random. Wow. Yeah. So it makes that. It is. You know what? I'm going to look on my phone because I'm sure the listeners want to want to know as well. It's uh, an app. Yep, it is an app. It's called uh, it's called Time Trainer. Huh. Yep. So you can. It's cool because I use it. Um, I use another thing called the Speed Upper. So I'll set. I'll start a groove and start it at like 40 beats a minute. Set it for 20 minutes and say, mm-hmm. okay, I want to start at 40. I want to end at 90. And I want to play this for 20 minutes, so it'll gradually increase the speed up until you know for for 20 minutes up until you reach the 90 BPM mark. Hmm. So it's a pretty interesting app. It was like three dollars, but well worth every every penny. Those are two different apps. No, it's the same one. Oh wow! Yep. And so you can take out, um, you can have bar breaks in there where it cuts out a whole bar, or you can have it just ran and then. But the random beat drop is the one the part that I, I really like. So you can have it, you know, gradual or just have it start at 90%, dropping out 90% of the beat hmm. or 90% of the click. So it's a real, uh, it's a real eye opener when you're, when you're playing something at 40 beats a minute and 80% of the clicks are missing. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's good. So yeah, it's, it's I'll, definitely I'll worth checking it out. Thank I'll, you. I'll link to it. Sure. I'll link to it in the, in the show notes page as well for all the listeners. Uh, so the next two are my, my favorite topics, creativity and, and musicianship. So how do you suggest, let's start with the creativity of working on creativity behind the kit and phrasing and, and all of that. Um, well, let's talk about, uh, in a jazz context. Okay. Um, 
musicians, uh, when we're playing together, we're sending each other signals all the time. Like, are we together? Am I too loud? Is this speeding up? Um, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But we also can send uh, motivic signals to each other. And I'm sure you've had the experience where you're playing with somebody and um, let's say a guitar player plays a quote from a Hendrix tune that you know. Right. But you're, you're playing another tune, but he plays something that Hendrix played. Mm-hmm. When that happens, that sends information if you recognize the Hendrix quote, it sends information that this guy likes Hendrix, that this guy, that you and he have listened to the same records, that maybe you can change your playing a little bit to reflect the fact that you listen to that Hendrix record too. Mm-hmm. So this communication is happening, and it's happening based on a knowledge of the language that you're dealing with. Hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. So if if I'm talking about jazz and and I'm playing with somebody and they play a quote from Sonny Rollins, and I know that it's a record that Philly Joe Jones played on, I might play something related to what Philly Joe played on that song. Right. So the first requirement is that you have to have listened to a lot of records. You have to know what the dialect or the language of that genre of music is. Mm -hmm. And then once you have that language, then you start to distort it. Right. By, um, I think transcribing is a great tool. So I, you know, write down what you hear your favorite players play. Mm-hmm. and learn how to play that. And, you know, if you, have, if you have reasonable skills, I can play a fake version of David Garibaldi with the skills that I have. Right. But if I want to grow, I need to learn exactly what he played because it's a little different than what's comfortable to me. Mm-hmm. So accessing new material by getting exactly the stuff that your idols play and then changing the direction that you play it in or take a triplet phrase and play it at the 16th note rate or drop the last two notes out or add an extra bass drum. Basically, you're slicing and dicing this uh, this language. Um, it's it's really not about inventing a new language. It's about learning the language and finding your own point of view with it. Sure. So if I transcribe some Philly Joe Jones and I have that page on my music stand and next to that I have some Jeff Watts that I transcribed. Mm-hmm. Because I have the material written down I can force my eye to jump from one page to the other and link things together that wouldn't naturally uh, occur to me. Hmm. Like if I just learn by ear, it's hard to make these links. 
Sure. But if I have if I have stuff written down, then I mean I can even have the page I can fold the paper so that the measures are right next to each other, and then try and try and get a flow from one phrase to another. Huh. Um, and maybe I'm going to like what that is. Right. And that that will help me. Uh, that will take me on an exploration of that kind of thing. And so this is this is uh, the way I work on creativity. I, I think, I think that, that's a cool way to do it too. I think a small percentage of what I play is uh, maybe of my own invention. Right. But a lot of what I play is from modifying phrases that I've heard other people play and that I liked. Mm -hmm. And then trying to turn them upside down or make it a seven-note phrase instead of an eight-note phrase. So it right. flips in a weird way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, isn't, every, isn't music that in a nutshell, it's something that someone else did and then someone takes it and, and, you know, expands it or changes it or, or, you know, everybody sounds like the, the drummers that came before them and every, you know, all musicians sound like the musicians that came before them, some to pay homage and, and some to help, help develop their own style and sound. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but I think being active in the process um, helps you progress faster. Mm -hmm. Don't don't think that everything occurs by osmosis or right. by exactly some kind of ma magical gift. Um, you've got to you've got to be engaged in the process and and pushing yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and and acknowledge the growth that you're having. Right. That's that's one thing that's always helped me with practicing is is actually physically watching the growth, you know, videotaping it or or listening to it at least uh, and then starting to get addicted to the progress and not necessarily the action of practicing. So, yeah, well, it is the prog that's that's the uh, that's the dessert when you see some progress. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> you know, and this has been going on forever. Sure. Um, I, I was talking to Roy Haynes once and I, you know, he's often along with Max Roach called the, the father of modern jazz drumming. Mm -hmm. And I asked him how he felt about that and he said, Oh man, I'm just trying to sound like Joe Jones. <laughs> and then you read an early interview with, uh, with Vinnie Kaliuta and he says, yeah, I just took Tony Williams and, and, uh, Steve Gadd and put them in a blender. Right. And so this is the, this is the process. And the Gospel Chops guys are taking Dennis Chambers and and Chris Dave and and blending that. Mhm. Mm yeah. So now we have the uh the last piece of it which is musicianship. Well, this is maybe the most important one mm -hmm. because there have been a number of drummers throughout history without great chops that worked all the time because they were good musicians. 
Mm-hmm. So musicianship means understanding what a song requires, understanding what the other musicians are trying to achieve, understanding the structure of a song, and then using the resources that you've gained by practicing technique and creativity and and groove and using them for the best outcome for the group as a whole. Mm-hmm. So I, I I think our objective is to to unify and inspire the people we play with. And so you need to under you need to be able to hear harmony. You don't need to know the names of the chords, but you ne- need to be able to hear resolution points. Right. And when the harmony is suggesting motion or tranquility or tension um, and play in a way that that supports that. But the main thing is to know where you are in the form of a song. Mm-hmm. That's a and learning forms is a complicated thing when you first started because I remember learning forms and it sort of first I, I didn't really understand what was going on. I didn't understand that that's how tunes were, <laughs> which sounds mm-hmm. which sounds funny. Me too. Me too. Yeah, and but it's such an eye opening experience where. You know, I said, oh, well, that's how everyone knows where they are and what they're playing. And and then I just totally heard songs in a different in a different light after that. Well, it makes it much easier when you hear that there's a cycle that's repeating. Right. Especially in jazz music. Mm-hmm. You, it's it's mandatory that you can hear this harmonic cycle that's repeating because it it. Uh, it guides what everyone else plays and it informs you about when a drummer is likely to play some kind of fill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a fill in measure eight going to measure one feels a certain way where the exact same fill played in measure one going into measure two feels completely different. Right. So you need to know what impact the placement of your fills has on the flow for everyone else. Yep. So how do you, how do you suggest that people, uh, or let's, let's sort of say an easy song to, to dive into, to, to start to fill out or to start to find, figure out the form of the tune, uh, so that people can, sort of understand what we're talking about if, if there's listeners out there that don't? Well, there's two main structures in, in jazz. There's many modifications, but there's two main structures, and one is the 12-measure blues, mm-hmm. and the other is the 32-measure song. And so we've heard many songs that uh, conform to these structures, and then it's a matter of identifying the ones that that somebody has heard but didn't know, didn't realize that they were a blues or that they were 32 bars. Mm -hmm. So 
I grew up in a, in an era of cartoons on television and um the theme song from from Batman is a blues right so it's it's a 12 measure blues and so if you can feel that cycle and the way it resolves at the end and returns back to the beginning on um, that song then when somebody else says well we're going to play straight no chaser which is also a blues you have a reference point right and so when we say batman is a 12 measure structure um if i sing it i'm not a good singer but it's like one two three four batman three four two two three four batman three four four two three four batman three four six two three four batman three four eight two three Batman doo ba doo Batman boo boo doo Batman boo boo doo da twelve three four one. So that harmonic cycle keeps repeating. It's Same as, as if the Freddie Freeloader. Is... Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And and a thousand other songs. Right. Including. Um, uh, there's a song that I used to play as a kid called Wooly Bully, which actually was a 13-bar blues because of the melody. But you had to hear the cycle. Um, otherwise, if you think it's 12 bars, then you're always playing the fill in the wrong bar. <laughs> <laughs> and there goes the musicianship right out the window. <laughs> yeah, because when you play it there... It has a certain gravitational pull. Right. And the other musicians are going to say, oh, geez, am I lost or is he lost? And right. suddenly the whole, the integrity of the whole thing is going to be compromised. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And for a 32 measure song, there's songs like uh, A Train or mm -hmm. the theme song from the Flintstones. Um, Flintstones usually has a little tag on the end of it, but but you want to get comfortable with with that kind of structure, right? Which w we would call A A B A, and what that means is that there's a melody that's eight measures long. That's the A. It's repeated. That's the second A. Then the B is a, usually a new melody in a new key center. And then the last A repeats again. And so that whole cycle um, is the basis for the song. Yep. Yeah, and I think A Train may be one that's a little easier to hear. Yeah, um, so that would be one, two, one, two, three, four, one, two, two, three, four. Five, eight, two, three, four, again, do, 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 three, boom, five, now the bridge, boo, boo, dee, da, 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 dee, da, boo, boo, dee, da, boo, boo, dee, da, last eight, do, 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 three, um, 
And then back to the that makes sense. Yep. Yeah. And then excuse my singing. Oh, that's you should hear me sing. (laughs) I wasn't even going to attempt it. So, Uh, and you know, if you look at, you can go online and check out anybody playing it. Um, One of one of my favorites though is Steve Gadd playing it because he's you know he solos through the whole form, and that's another thing that that I really want to want people to understand is that you know the solo that he does he's playing through the whole the whole form of the song whether he'll do it you know t- once through the form twice through the form three times through the form whatever the case may be and for me once i realized form melody and putting those two together and i would have to do a drum solo it was more it it, it sort of it was like a no brainer i didn't really have to think about it because i would just play the melody rather than trying to come up with all of these licks that lasted for I don't know how long I should play anything. If mm-hmm. that, does that make sense? Yeah, I, um, I'm certain that when Steve is playing that drum solo, he's singing the melody to A-Train, and basically he's uh, grafting his drum phrases onto that melody. Mm-hmm. But the melody is much more important to him than the licks he's playing. Absolutely. They're basically just uh, linking the melodic ideas that he's hearing that he's hearing in his head. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when you get to the point where that's very easy to do, where you hear the melody kind of going softly through your mind with no effort then you're able to play some music. Right. If, if you're um, consumed by, keeping, by singing the melody to yourself, then you can't play any music. Right. So how do you suggest people practice that, though? Just grab tunes and start playing over them and, and singing the melody? Yes. Yeah, because it's hard. It's, it is, it's hard. Or even taking a melody and, you know, just taking the first section of any melody uh, and try to play that rhythmically on the drums and then expand on that and expand on that and expand on that. That's even that is hard to do. Yeah. That, that gets to what Louis Armstrong said. Somebody was interviewing him and they, they said, Oh, this jazz, it's, it's about improvisation. Uh, What does that mean? And Louis Armstrong in his inimitable way said, well, First, the man, the man learns to play the song. Then the man learns to play off of the song. Then the man learns to play off of the playoff. Hmm. So first you learn to play A-Train, Yep. as it is. Then you learn to play off of A-Train. Then you hear that personalized version in your head, and you play off of that. Right. And that's when it gets really interesting when you're taking the melody and subdividing the stuff that you're hearing in, in the melody into your own things and, you know. Yeah, and, that, and some of that you do in the practice room. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you have a new phrase that you're working on, um, can you feel this 13-note this, uh, phrase as it unfolds across four measures of A-Train? Right. 
and that takes some some concentration. Yeah. Yeah, it'll definitely uh, it'll it definitely separates the men from the boys when you get in there and start doing that. And sometimes, I mean, you know, I've walked out of the practice room with my tail between my legs sometimes, just frustrated, and you know, and and it's just it's hard. It, I'll just leave it at that. It's hard. If if those out there listening haven't tried it, uh, I definitely suggest that you you take some of this and go into the practice room with it and try it because it'll it'll help you grow exponentially as a player and uh, you know as a musician as well. Yeah, maybe even before that, take a recording of, uh, find a recording of A Train and listen to it and count the measures and see if you can feel where the, see if you can arrive at the top of the form each time they do mm-hmm. and see if you can feel the bridge each time it arrives without playing. Just listen to it and count and, and, clap on beat one of of bar one and mm-hmm. bar nine and bar 17 and bar 25 and just make sure that you know exactly where you are and and when you can do that suddenly you'll understand the reasons the people played what they did leading up to each of those landmarks mm-hmm. and then try and play play uh time and sing the melody to yourself and then try and solo so make it kind of a progression sure yeah you don't just want to jump into it no and you may need to listen to it for a week or two counting along and then playing along for a week or two before you you really feel secure Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i agree all, all good stuff, John. I think that uh, I think that the listeners are going to have a lot to go into the practice room, uh, especially all the stuff that we talked about, the insights about technique and groove and, and creativity and, and musicianship. I know that I know I got a lot out of it. I know the, that the listeners did as well. Um, and so if people want to learn more about you and they want to get in contact with you, how can they do that? Uh, well, I have a website, John. Uh, sorry, johnreilly.org. And um, there's a discussion page there where you can send me a note or my email address is in there. Somewhat camouflaged, but easy to find, I hope. Um, yeah, that's the best way to reach me. And if, if anybody in New York, I, I play at the Village Vanguard every Monday night if, if I'm in town. Oh, you and do? I do, yeah. Oh, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll have to come see you. Oh, I've been doing it, uh, well, it's the old Thad Jones, Mel Lewis band, and Mel Lewis passed away, I think, in 91, mm-hmm. and I've been doing it, well, not since 91, but since 92 or 93, ever since then, hmm. and it's really been a great experience. I am um, definitely going to come come see you then. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and anyone out there, if you're in the in the New York area, check them out at the Village Vanguard on Monday nights. And so, do you do you teach privately as well, right? I teach. Um, yeah, I teach. Well, I teach at the Manhattan School of Music and at SUNY Purchase, and I have uh, intermittent private students. I don't do any regular private teaching outside of the school. Okay. Uh, I have been doing some Skype lessons, and that's 
I've been really surprised at how effective that is. Mm-hmm. You know, you said something earlier that I wanted to uh, to follow up on, that sometimes you leave the practice room with, with your tail between your legs. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's not uncommon. Right. But And I've had that same experience, or I've been practicing something and it's been frustrating me and I'll... I'll walk out of the practice room and make a phone call or drink some orange juice or something and then go back to the drums and somehow that thing that was hanging me up has has formed better. Right. And I think what what's happening is that uh, we assemble the things that are challenging us uh, in our subconscious. And uh, so... Don't be so frustrated because the next time you return to it, it will probably be in a better shape than, than you left it. Mm-hmm. As long as it's not, you know, three weeks later. Right, right. Because <laughs> um, that happens to me a lot where something is frustrating me and, and I'll take a little break and I'll go back and, and suddenly it's there. Right. Um, and that's, that gives me hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I was actually I was working out of uh, the Charlie Wilcoxon books book this morning, and there's like a two bar phrase that just every time I play it I get hung up. So I went through it today and was like, all right, I'm gonna drop it down to 40 beats or 50 beats a minute, I think it was, and I'm gonna play through it. After about two minutes of playing through it, everything just sort of started to blur, and I couldn't play any of it at all. Mm. Like I'd never played it before. So I did the same thing. I got up, I walked around for a few minutes, I came back down you know, hit the pad and it came out perfectly. So it's funny that you had mentioned that because I, I literally did that this morning. So uh, a great piece of Which advice. Solo? It's uh, the paradiddle Johnny. Uh-huh. So there's a, there's a two bar phrase uh, that it, it alternates between the paradiddles and the triplets, but then the accents change as well. Yep. And yeah. I don't know why every time I run through it, I was I was just getting hung up at that point, and I it, I can play. I was like, I know I can play this, but I can't for some reason. Uh, so I was like, I'll just loop it, and I kept running through it and running through it, and and then it it blurred, and then it got so it got worse, and then I just walked away, and I said, all right, let me come back and let me play this thing, and just sat down, and and it came out nicely. So, no, oh, good for you. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. That's tomorrow a great book, it might be way. a little rough when you try it, but much quicker you'll have it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's a, another piece that that I think that everyone needs to recognize is that if there's something that you're constantly flubbing, like you're playing through a, a piece and you're flying right through that, you should take that and magnify it and really dig inside of it to make sure that you're playing it cleanly and playing it correctly rather than just saying, oh, I know I always screw up that section, but I'll just keep going anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's really common where you always start at the beginning of the piece. So the first line is fantastic, and each line past that gets worse and worse. Right. I always feel like the beginning and the end are really good for some for one reason or another. The middle gets a little murky sometimes. Mm-hmm. Well, the end is usually similar to the beginning. Right. It's like a recapitulation. Right. <laughs> so... 
Well, John, thank you. Thank you so much for, for taking all this time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. And I know the listeners did as well. They've been asking me to get you on the show for a while. I've been wanting to get you on the show for a while. So it's a pleasure to, to finally have had you. And for anyone out there listening, be sure to check out his website, johnreilly.org. Excuse me. Check out all of his books, uh, his DVDs. And if you're in the New York area, come out and see him at the Village Vanguard. I strongly suggest it. Thanks, Nick. Absolutely. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll keep in touch and I'll see you. I'll see you in the city uh, at Village Vanguard. Definitely. Great. Thanks. All right. Thanks. Bye bye, everybody. There you have it. The one and only John Riley. Be sure to check him out. JohnRiley.org. Check him out at the Village Vanguard. And yeah, if you want to see some some amazing jazz drumming, go see John Riley. Also, if you would do me the favor and vote for Drummer's Resource for 2015 Drummy, I would love you. Well, I already love you, but I would love you even more. Head over to drummagazine.com forward slash drummies, D-R-U-M-M-I-E-S. Vote for Drummer's Resource for the best general interest drumming website. I would love you for it. I'm on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash drummer's resource. I'm on Instagram at drummer's resource, and I'm on Twitter at drummer's R source because drummer's resource is 16 letters and Twitter only lets you have 15. So I had to, had to settle for R source. Anyway, check me out on all those platforms. And, uh, yeah, if you need anything, shoot me an email, Nick at drummersresource.com. I hope you have a great week. I'll be in touch soon. Thanks so much for listening and keep drumming. Peace. (laughs) 